It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, not more importantly, most importantly, it's about recovery. That's the most important part. You know what I mean? Because I like to show people that recovery is possible, Dr. Matt. That was our goal when we started the show. Because... The, the reality is, is everybody goes through tough times and whether it's an addiction to alcohol, addiction to drugs, addiction to pornography, gambling. I'm not saying everybody's going to get that addiction, but Netflix, ev- Diet Coke, donuts. Yeah, whatever it is, yeah. there's something in your life that has power over the, you that you wish it didn't. Or one of your family members do. Yes. And sometimes the hardest part is how we, how to reach that person, how to to be empathetic, how to be loving, how to set boundaries. There's there's no rule book for this. We we got uh, all kinds of stuff on math and algebra which we never ever use, but <laughs> nobody ever sits us down and teaches us how to communicate with our loved ones, how to be uh, empathetic. It would be a different world if that was required. How to be understanding. Yeah. And uh, so that's what we wanted to do on this podcast. Now Dr. Matt, the first part of the podcast is always me and you just kind of chatting and and what's going on in my life. Life, what's going on in your life? And I was thinking about something I was driving down here. Um, even when I was in my most optimistic state, and uh, this is when I was on the radio, I was married, everything seemed to be good. I always walked around wondering when the other shoe was going to drop. Mm. I mean, it didn't matter how good life was. I was always preparing for the other shoe to drop on anything. And, and it kind of always put me on the edge. Mm-hmm. Because I really wasn't able to be authentic and in the moment and enjoying everything that was going on because I was concerned about when's that other shoe going to drop. And I didn't even know what that shoe was going to drop about, but I was always in the back of my mind thinking – It's kind of a feeling, right? Yeah, yeah. Like life is just too good. It shouldn't be this good. When is when is this going to come crashing down? Little did I know that it was going to – We know the date now. Yeah, yeah. Was September 3rd, 2018. <laughs> uh, but to be honest, there was many days before that right, that the shoe right. had dropped. But I can tell you right now, my life is going fabulous. It's going wonderful. I got great relationship with my parents, with my kids, with my girlfriend, with my ex-wife, with my work, with, with every, everybody. Yeah. And I don't have this overwhelming feeling that the other shoe is going to drop. That doesn't mean that I'm naive and I'm not preparing for the future and, you know, should bad things happen because they are going to happen. Yeah. But I'm not constantly wondering when is it going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's a, a mind shift in my sobriety or I've kind of grown up and, and I, I just don't know what it is. But well, that was going to be my question is do you understand why it's different now? I don't. I don't. But I don't feel like it. Like right now, everything's coming up aces for me. And it, it, yeah, and, it's it, going well. And it's great. And instead of wondering when the shoe's going to drop, I'm actually enjoying it. I'm enjoying my time on TV. I'm enjoying my conversations with my kids. I'm enjoying my girlfriend. I'm enjoying the relationship I have with my ex-wife. I'm not enjoying so much uh, the remodel that's been going on since uh, yeah. last December. Yeah, yeah. But I'm you excited. You will someday I when will. it's all done. Yeah. And, and, and may, I, I don't know why. Can you tell me why? Well, let's talk about it. Okay. <laughs> so... 
back in the day mm-hmm. when you said you had that feeling of this, the, you know, everything. And, and we all we all knew you. I, I knew of you back in those days when you were on the radio. And before I was on that radio show, you had just left. So our paths didn't quite cross at that point. But uh, things were going well. But like you said, you were you were thinking outwardly. So you are a self-proclaimed pleaser. You like to walk in the room, make everybody laugh, make everybody happy. Mm-hmm. Um, you're on the radio. You're you're doing silly gags around Salt Lake City. You're 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 entertaining everybody else. During that time, how much personal self-reflection, concentrated, purposeful growth were you engaged in on Casey? Absolutely zero. Right. Uh, maybe a little time at the gym. You were spinning plates. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a little time at the gym. Yeah, a little, a little time at the gym. That and, and that was about it. Other yeah. than that, it was always, what can I do to make you laugh? What can I do to make right. you happy? What can I do to make these salespeople job easier? What can I and, and that was my yeah. mindset. And, and it was like, if I'm pleasing all these people. And you were the go-to guy. And a lot of people don't really know that behind the scenes, when like a big band would come to town. Casey was out there like entertaining them, making them happy, getting them what they wanted. You were greasing all the wheels so that these bands would keep coming to town and performing here in Salt Lake, right? I would pick them up at the airport. I would take them to the clubs. I would, if they say they needed anything, I would do my best to find it. Anything? Anything. Anything. Yeah. Anything. (laughs) We can leave it at that. Yeah. Whatever whatever they needed, I was their go-to guy. Right. So a lot of times when they came back through, rather than calling the station, they would call me directly. They'd call you. Yes. And going, hey, we're coming into town. This is, and I'd be like, cool. Cool. And you set it up. Everything got set up. So a lot of people don't know all that behind the scenes. The way I vision your life and a lot of people who are in that industry doing that thing, it's like spinning plates. You got to keep all those plates spinning. If you, if you're old enough to remember the Johnny Carson days or those kind of TV acts where people would literally spin plates, they had to run around and keep them all going. And that distracts a person from any self-reflection. Right. You don't have time. You're, you're trying to pay the bills, make the wife happy, deal with the kids, spin all the plates, you know, make uh, ACDC happy, whichever band it is. It was mostly yeah, Howard Jones, Howard in Jones. Excess, Midnight Oil, Minnell, those yeah, guys. Yeah. 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 And, and doing all that kind of stuff. And it distracts a person. Unfortunately, during the time in life when you can really the term is individuate or become yourself in your 20s and early 30s. And so. That was then, and you always had this sense that things are a little precarious. They may not last. When's the other shoe going to drop? Okay. Fast forward to sitting in detox. Mm-hmm. How did life for the next few months change in this regard as far as where your focus went? Well, the focus all shifted inward. Uh, I had to fix me. I had to figure out what I liked. I had to figure out what I wanted, what was important to me, and how was I going to be able to get those things. That's what I had to do, and I had a lot of time to do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, because you weren't uh, a, everything else went away. The, but, the crazy thing in my early career, I wanted to be who you wanted me to be. Yeah. That's I didn't become who it. I wanted to be. I became who you wanted me to be. And it didn't matter who it was in the room. I wanted to be the person you wanted me to be. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know who I wanted to be. And now, after the three years and a lot of internal work, I know who I want to be. I know what kind of person I want to be. And so I, that's probably right. Gosh, you're a good doctor. Well, I, I would say that's that's the true meaning. What you're talking about right now is the core or the true meaning of of the word recovery, 
we're doing a show called Project Recovery. And we've said on the show a lot, you've said a lot, you know, uh, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's recovery. Mm-hmm. And recovery means digging deep, changing your perspective, self-knowledge, growth, taking the time for yourself. It is so hard to try to provide for a family, create a career, keep other people happy, pay all the bills, and still spend time on self-discovery and self-development. And we're and like you said, we're not taught that. that. That's not a course in high school. It's the opposite. It, it, it's the opposite. Go out there, conquer the world, get a career, buy a big house, you know, do big Check stuff. Check all the boxes. Yeah. But along the way, we forget about our self-development. So I think the reason, I mean, it's just a theory. I'll take it. But my theory is the reason you don't feel like the other shoe's about to drop anymore. And the reason that things are going your way uh, is because you know who you are now. You aren't focused on trying to be somebody for someone else. You're focused on being yourself. And a lot of people don't know that opportunities have come your way in the last year, 18 months, that I think you would have jumped all over uh, in the old days. You would have been, yes. And now I hear you say stuff like, I don't know, I'm going to have to think about that. Is that right for me? Is that right for my family? I don't know that that, even though these are big opportunities that I think if we announced them all, which we won't, but people would be like, oh my gosh, he didn't take that. He didn't do that. And it's because, well, you're now filtering it through the through Casey, like, is this who I am anymore? Is this the right thing for me? When I got the offer to come back on TV, the first yeah, people this, asked that's an example was my kids. I was yeah. like, hey, if you guys don't want me to do this, I'm okay. I won't do it. But it's up to you guys because you're part of it. Because unfortunately, you got dragged on the along the ride on the last one, and uh, I don't want to put you in this. a family disease, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, well that, that, that's that's my theory. That makes that's sense. And and I think the other thing is is should the other shoe drop, and eventually one will. Uh, I know I can do hard things. But you're 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 grounded. You're you're Casey now instead of you're not my Casey or someone else's Casey. You're your own Casey. And so I would say if you're out there thinking about getting sober, that's awesome. But also start thinking about getting to know yourself, develop yourself, have personal insight. Um, to me, that's the real definition of recovery. And then your whole life changes. Yeah, it's amazing. Hey, Curtis, uh, he's our guest today. Curtis G. Mars. The G stands for Gary. Gary, that's my dad. Yeah. Uh, proud of it. At any point in your addiction, did you feel like you were a plate spinner? Oh, when you were saying that, I was, I called it a chameleon. You know, it was. If I was with my biker buddies, I was the biker guy. If I was with, uh, you know, another group, business group or religious group, whatever. Yeah, so I was always trying to please. And I think that stemmed from my up, upbringing. You know, it was, I was the oldest of four. And so, you know, was that good enough? Was that good enough example for my for my siblings? And, you know, please be parents. I think we all want to do that. Yeah. The voice you're hearing is Curtis G. Marsh. He's the author of the book, Rise Above the Chaos. We're going to find out more about him. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. My good friend over there is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist, and I, I don't know you all that well, Curtis, but I'm pretty sure Dr. Matt's the smartest man in the room. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it. But you're a well-read Casey person. Casey says stuff like that. Just you're a well-read to... <laughs> person because Dr. Matt brought us a book today. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. Beautiful. And uh, you said this is a great book, so you've great already book. read it. Yes, I have. Gary Lee Price gave me that book. So we're going to, me and Josh, the producer, are going to read this, and then we'll have a book report next week, or maybe in two weeks or a month. It's a short one, and uh, Victor Frankel, I would say it's uh, it's one of those books that if everybody read that book, it would create a culture of people that were self-reflective. Really? You'd have to, you would definitely rethink what your life means. Right. What, where do you get meaning in your life? So I hope you'll read it. Okay. I'm, no, I'm going to read it. I promise you I will read yep. it. Uh, Curtis, where does the story of uh, chaos, because that was your nickname through all the madness of your addiction, where does the uh, story of chaos begin? Um, chaos was a name given to me in the biker world by my, my buddy Gary Ross out of Boston. And we were uh, riding with Dee Snyder, Vince Neil, and Foghat. Up in West Yellowstone, that's quite that's quite the group right there. Yeah, that Did is. Did you just listen guys, to who he was those talking guys about? Flying in their jets. <laughs> that's we a had Molly the crew. Molly yeah. crew, Twisted Sister, yeah, Fog oh, Hat. Man. Wow. Slow ride. We had a we had Slow a great ride. time, and and uh, he said to me, he says, "Hey, he says you're you're, you're chaos." And I, I looked at him, I thought, you know, that's not got the greatest meaning to me uh, and and to the world. Uh, when you when you think of chaos, I mean, what do you think of uh, mess? Mess, um, disaster, yeah. things disaster, aren't going well. Just out of control. And he 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 said that to me, and I th- I thought, man. And then I thought, you know what? I think I started kind of living, playing into that because I was like unhappy with my life, and I was, I thought, I am going to be chaos. I'm going to create chaos. So you leaned it. into it. I leaned into it, and I became that name. And I, I I created chaos in my own life by, you know, chaos comes into our life two ways. Life. It just happens. Something chaotic happens in our life and how long we let it stay and what we let it teach us. Nothing is designed to crush us, okay? Or chaos will come into our life by the choices that we make. And that was the majority of my chaos. I had the world by the tail, I thought. uh, You know, a lot like you, Casey. You know, I worked on um, some major firms on Wall Street and had just a a great life. But deep down, I I was fighting this pain and people pleaser that we talked about so where did the pain start so let's start at the very beginning where did you grow up i grew up in salt lake uh age five we moved to bountiful utah my parents two west high graduates and uh still still with us today my dad gary my mom beverly great great people uh in their 80s um i was the oldest of four and um that coupled with i think the upbringing uh, in the in the faith that I was raised in, and it's not to bash the the faith or anything like that. It's just I I I thought and and, and felt inside that I was expected to be perfect. I remember playing sports, and if I fouled somebody or I didn't do something right, I'd look over at my dad. Is that is that good enough? You know. So, and it wasn't necessarily him putting that on me, but it was that expectation I had on myself to be to be perfect in in, in whatever scenario I was in. And that's, that's a double-edged sword because I, I really excelled in, in some areas in life because I, I had that deep belief. But perfection doesn't exist. Perfection isn't possible. And once I, once I realized that, my life started to shift. So, yeah, you're, you're right. It's not. But I did think that at the time. Being the oldest of, of four kids, 
my upbringing. I mean, we had, we had a great family. You know, the Norman Rockwell, Hallmark-type family. We did a lot. There was prayer in our home. There was a mom that had meals on the table. I mean, perfect. I mean, you wouldn't think that Curtis Marsh would have experienced what he did based on that pressure that I, I, I put on myself. You know, I'm not, I'm not here well, to blame anybody. Well, I think it's a dynamic. So I agree with you that, that you probably put it on yourself. But I would think of it more like kids bring something to the family and the family and the culture that it's in bring something to the kid. And there's a dynamic interaction that happens there. You mentioned your place in the family. Oldest children, uh, yeah. I'm in there. Uh, sometimes have a high sense of responsibility and identification with parents. So you feel like, oh, I, I should be more like my dad. Now, if you're a second or a third boy, you can be a lot less like your dad. Like you'd be like, I can goof around because yeah. the older brothers have me insulated, yeah. right? right? But but the oldest it takes on a sense of responsibility. And then uh, because things were going so well, there's a model, you know, mom and dad are doing great and our lives are great. So we need to be just like them. But kids are naive. We don't have adult brains. We don't know everything. <laughs> that goes into putting that food on the table. We yeah. don't know all the mistakes our parents made. We just see the outcomes. And then also um, having a, a, a structured religious upbringing uh, brings with it many benefits, but also a kid who has that sort of attitude that, that you brought to the table can put a lot, feel a lot of pressure. Exactly. And it's a dynamic, so it's exactly. not really anyone's fault. Right. I think right. that that's an immature way to define those situations but it is the result of all those factors coming together absolutely and so a lot of times people feel uh, a weight on them to do everything just right and to be perfect and that wears a person down over time yeah yeah no that's that's exactly he's good huh yeah he is the smartest one in the room i'm telling you so do you remember the first time you tried alcohol yeah um you know and it's it's you, you don't you don't wake up and that's going to happen. It's a series of I tell people when I speak to the youth, I say it's like Hansel and Gretel. You know, it's little teeny choices, little breadcrumbs that you're following into the forest. And then one minute you wake up and you're going, "How did I get here?" But um, if I can backtrack just a little bit, um, I in 1986 I became the youngest financial consultant ever hired by Shearson Lehman Brothers, which is they were the, the biggest firm on Wall Street. Uh, they went belly up in 2008. Show you how bad that we remember the recession brothers, was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and the why that I had associated my life with and was taught, you know, the the blessings that come from you align with these things or your why in life, these blessings will come. That's how I was raised. Um, when I started my career, um, I made eighty thousand dollars at the age of twenty three. That was back in nineteen eighty six, and I don't say that boastfully. But as a, it's kind of a benchmark. That's a lot of money. Now you shift from this why of humble, kind, you know, and, and the things that I was used to to, a, to an arrogant, cocky. Um, I, I was telling Casey out here, kissed both my biceps and said, "Hey, God, I've got this. This is all about me. Uh, this is all about Curtis Marsh." And that um, that was probably the first you know, mis misdirect, mm. um, that I, I just, I just started getting caught up in that world. And so my first drink of alcohol was, um, just based on a, a accumulation of these little teeny decisions. 
um, do you think so that, that you, I would make on the road and lie about and hide and then so I'd have growing to cover up it with as alcohol. a kid junior high high school you didn't partake in any no, of those sorts no, of things because you still had that first attitude right the humble right the humble Curtis yeah I, I I didn't have any experience with that and then you know that people pleaser deal syndrome as well um, and I remember walking into a, a hotel room and we we were paid big money and i was paid to entertain people and there was all kinds of alcohol and and things there and i thought well i'm gonna participate because i wanted to be part of that crowd and then the pain of that because you take the pressure being thinking you have to be perfect your upbringing your why that you were aligned with now now i'm really beating myself up so now how do i cover that bad mistake i cover it with another one you know and, and you know as an alcoholic. It's a slippery slope. It is. So just to see if we got this right. So, you know, you, you make $80,000 at the age of 23, which is a ton of money. And that's back in 1986. 86, yeah. Uh, and then uh, you get hired by this big firm and your job is to take all these investors out and show them a good time. You were telling me at one point you had a $300,000 allowance a year for entertainment. $300,000 expense account. And that include, included my travel, my hotels. I've, you know. That's a lot of money today, but back then, that's an insane yeah, amount of yeah. money. And so you're out there entertaining these people, and uh, these are the movers and shakers in the world that you want to be a part of. And so you thought you would like to join them, and you wanted to be a part of that group. And this is what they were doing, so there's got to be something to it. Yeah. And so you take into it, but uh, after you do that, you realize it doesn't align with your core beliefs, and you start to feel bad. Yep. And beat yourself up. Yep. It's a painful, painful process. So then you do what a lot of addicts do rather than stop and address the situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You compound it. You make the next reactionary choice, and that is compounded with something else. You yeah. Don't, you don't pump the brakes, you hit the gas. Yeah, right. Instead of, you know, I've learned over the years that, you know, between stimulus and response, you got to make a decision. And I could have corrected it, you know, but I continued to beat myself up. I went, oh, man, I've drank now. I, I, I can't tell anybody. And see, then I hit it. And hiding that pain, and, and I would travel. So I'd only do it when I'd travel. I'd go home to my wife and my two beautiful daughters, and um, they didn't know. So now you're living a dual life. Right. I mean that. Which, see, see, how, see, you can feel the pain. I, no, I, I, no, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I get it because I've it. lived a dual yeah. life. You know, one persona on TV and then one persona at home. You know, I was yeah. on TV entertaining the masses, and then I was sitting at home on the deck by myself, drowning my sorrows in a twelve pack of beer. Yeah, you know, yeah. and wondering who was who. And and when we started this podcast, I know who I am and I am now, but I didn't know back then, uh, and I knew who I want to be. So you're living a dual life. You're on the road. You're hiding your secret life from your family. And just creating all kinds of inner chaos. And what does that look like? I mean, does your does your wife at home ever wonder? Uh, you know, does it start? Does it spiral out of control quick? I'm sure she. Um, I'm sure she guessed a couple of times that you know, but she was she was such a she's a beautiful lady, beautiful mother to my kids, but um, I I don't think she knew. But then again. You know, as addicts, we think we're really doing a good job hiding, but she, she, she may have. She just didn't say anything to me. So this went on for years, and I'm thinking, how do I unravel this sucker? Because it's get, just getting worse and worse and worse, you know. And by outward appearances, 
I had it all together. You know, I had the the lifestyle, all the cars, the boats, the motorcycles. Um, the definition of worldly success was was right there. And in fact, share a little story with you. People used to come up and say, "Hey, Curtis, you don't quite seem happy." But you've got everything. And they would look around, you know, beautiful home, beautiful wife, two beautiful daughters. I've got all the material things. I've got a great job. I travel. I can do anything that I want. But I wasn't, I didn't have that inner peace. And I would say to him, I'd say, uh, for example, Casey, I'll tell you what. You come to my house on Saturday. We're going to go into the garage. There's, I had a Harley Davidson safe with titles of ownership to my to my vehicles and Hummers and things like that. And I want you to bring me one thing, and it's not money. And we're going to go in that garage, and you can pick anything that you want. And I'm going to give you the title. But you have to give me one thing. Okay. I'm in. Yeah. You in? Yeah. So they would show up to my house, and they'd say, hey, I'll take the uh, I'll take the white white Hummer. We'd go over to the, you know, role play going through the to the to the safe take out the title and I'd go to hand it to him and say, Casey, here you go. And then pull it back. And I would say, just want one thing. And he'd look at me and say, what, what is that? And I'd say inner peace. And that's what I'd lost. And you know, that feeling yeah. when you lose that inner peace, you are in chaos. You are completely out of control and talk about, you know, you know yourself now. You have that inner peace. I can see it in you, you know. I, I, I've i only seen you, you know, handful of times, but you you have a different look to you. That's that inner peace, I believe. And nobody can give you inner peace. Only you can find it. Well, one one author of inner peace for me is is my higher power, God. So that's one way that I rose above rock bottom. So you're out there entertaining the world, checking all the boxes that you thought you yeah. needed to be checking. Uh, are you just drinking at the time, or have you ventured into other substances? You got to chase one bad with a good with another one, right? You got you got to make another mistake to cover up that mistake. And so that's I'd a say, good strategy. <laughs> you know, works every time. Doesn't <laughs> I'm going to lie to get out of that other lie. Yeah. Instead uh, of doing the next right thing, yeah, we always do the next reactionary thing right it's, it's emotion based and it's like man i've okay i'm, I'm going to hell anyway I'm, i might as well do this now <laughs> i might as well go fast you know, so yeah i got into the drugs <laughs> um uh prescription non-prescription uh it was just that lifestyle of entertaining creating chaos in my own life no one saw it M- maybe a few did maybe a few did but um that built up built up over the years 2006 i retired i was 43 and i thought i got to get my life back mm-hmm. i got to get my family together and um in 2008 um i walked into divorce court there in farmington and um after two days of trial uh, i went straight from that courtroom to jail for 30 days for contempt for telling a judge he was full of BS. I, I worked on Wall Street, so Hooey. I thought you could say all those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I spent thirty days, and that was you. You had pivotal moments. Oh, yeah. 
Okay. That was my first pivotal moment, I believe, you know, to start. I believe that was God saying, hey, man, remember me? You put me on the bench back in 86, but I've been with you. You put me, I'm going to help you out, but I got to slow you down. So I spent 30 days in, in jail for contempt. And I'll tell you what, it was the worst, best 30 days of my life. And the reason I say that is because when you have nobody else to listen to, except for your own self, you have no, I mean, your, your, your connection with a higher power, you better, you better have one at that point. Um, and that was when I, when I started to kind of get a grip on myself in 2008. And like we talked, you don't change overnight. I didn't walk out of jail um, thinking I'm going to be a changed man. I was still angry. I'd lost everything on my divorce. My kids were in Cedar City now. I go to jail to a home that's, you know, my, that, that Hummer was gone from the parking lot that I drove to, to jail that day. My house is sold. Um, I was still angry. And my ego and, and arrogance, I was still, I thought, man, I, rule my, I used to rule my world with money and muscle. And it was like, I'll get it done. You know, I know people, when the, when the bailiffs were putting handcuffs on me, the judge said, you're the most egregious man that I've ever met in 18 years. And I wanted to say, I've got more, you know. <laughs> Keep <laughs> antagonizing me, buddy. And then he said, uh, you just got yourself 30 days in jail. No bail. And I said, no, I said, good, I got money, I'll bail. And he said, no bail. And I said, I know people. I spent 30, okay? Because yeah. it doesn't matter who you who you know but it was the great that was a great great moment for let, me. let me jump in and and i i need to ask a question because my curiosity yeah. is going so you prior to this jail stint that was 2008 <clears throat> 2003 you said you retired and with the goal 2006 2006 sorry you had the goal to get your life back to yeah. get you, you know your family kind of righted and and right your ship so to speak yep. and then you're and then we what happened in those two years? Like, like if that was your goal in 2006, how did you end up doing 30 days in jail in 2008? Why, great, why didn't it question. work out? Great question. Um, when you create so much chaos in your life, it's, it's not an, an automatic reversal. You know, I, I did think to myself, I'm going to get off the road. I was traveling four or five days a week. I would cover 28 States. My office was in Boston or Chicago or New York at the time. And, um, I thought, I'm going to get off the road. I'm going to kind of reel things in. I remember buying a boat, and I was going to, you know, do more family stuff. Um, and hope. There was a lot of hope there. There was no real plan. But, hey, I'm going to try to get my my life back. But I can kind of see your thinking because so far, everything else you've wanted to do, you've accomplished. So if it sounds yeah. like if you wanted to put your mind to it, like this is what I'm going to do. The world's given me everything else I wanted, so why is it not going to give me this? This one was bigger than me, though. I found out, you know. But you're right. I, I thought, okay, I'll get off the road. I've got money. I'll, 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 I'll make sure that I spend time with my family and so forth. So I started to do the work, but um, that pain was so deep. I mean, I, when I speak to the youth, I say it's like getting a sliver, and you get this pain in your heart and your soul of all the choices that you've made that you have labeled as negative bad experiences and that just festers and until you completely get that sliver out and that sliver for me was choices just a ton of ton of slivers until you get them all out um 
you don't have much of a chance to succeed um, because you live in that you still live in that entitlement world that that ego is is, is taking control. So uh, to answer your question, yeah, 2006, and I, I started, but uh, again, it was just very hard to um, completely unwind. I wonder if part of that um, is summarized in your statement that when you were sitting in jail alone, uh, you're just with yourself yeah. and you reached out for a higher power. But being with yourself, I could tell the way you said that was a really uncomfortable place to be, to be alone with yourself. And when a person, you, you've used the word ego a few times, mm-hmm. when their ego or their sense of who they are is all wrapped up in what they do, Yes. And then you retire from what you do. Now you're stuck with a stranger. Yeah. And so, so I wonder if those two years were not successful because you weren't really you anymore. You weren't the high rolling guy who traveled around the country all week and did big things and had a $300,000 expense account. You were just supposed to be dad or or husband. And that wasn't a comfortable person to be because it sounds like, and I don't mean to be dramatic in my language, you betrayed that person Absolutely. by the choices you made. Absolutely. And so then you're well, stuck with somebody you don't know, yeah. and you're like, and and feelings of shame and guilt oh. seep in there, yeah. right? And shame is such a killer. I, I don't know anybody who's a recovered addict that didn't harbor deep feelings of shame at some point in oh. their addiction. Yeah. We're going to get more of Curtis's story in just a second. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Curtis G. Marsh. He's the author of the book, Rise Above the Chaos. And uh, we just uh, heard from him, and he talked about his 30 days in jail. Uh, and as Dr. Matt so eloquently put it, as you were in jail with a stranger, and that stranger was yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. And you get out of jail, you're still angry at the world, you're still mad, um, and uh, what does your life look like then? You know, you go from senior vice president of a major, major firm to inmate number such and such. I get out that day, my car is gone from the parking lot that I drove there, my parents pick me up, they throw you your wrinkled bag of clothes um put those on and it's, it's it's humbling and you walk out your house is sold your 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 clothes are in black hefty trash bags um that's basically all you have left from this whole whole mess so again it was just a series of now what do you do you know mhm what's the next right thing and and again that that ego and that power trip it took a while to let that subside because I want to go back to court I want to continue to fight but that 30 days to where I really had to connect with a higher power on a level that I've never connected before um started that process it was one of the most pivotal moments because January 1st 2010 I quit I quit the drinking. I've been sober since that point, January 1st, 2010. Was there a traumatic experience that led up to January 10th, 2010? Uh, I mean, did you, or just was it something that you've been working towards for the past little while? Yeah, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like your experience. Um, but 
you know, I think Jell started it because you get to know, you know, you talk, start talking to guys in there and, and, and you realize that, um, you know, they, I, I could end up being a lifer just like a lot of them were, you know, and how easy it is. Um, so it was, it was the night before and I was at a party and I, I went home and I thought, I'm not hanging around good people. I'm not putting myself in great places. I'm not doing good things. And I have to realign with my why. My why is my children, my family, my faith, my belief, my friends, giving back. Uh, I do a lot of charity work. And when I lose myself in that, that is probably one of the most powerful things that I did for myself. And I believe anybody can do um, because you shift into a different world of serving others. And you mentioned this a couple of times, uh, finding your why. And you're not the only guest to, who's sat in that seat and talked about that. But for those who are maybe just joining us, Dr. Matt, why is it important to define our why? Well, it's in the title of that book I gave you, Man's Search for Meaning. You know, what is the, wh- what's the why is a common phrase used to de- define what is your meaning in life. Why do you do what you do? Right. Is it chaos? Are you just trying to keep the plate spinning? Are you not thoughtful about why you're doing what you're doing? Is it self-serving? Is that Are you your own why? Or have you found things of a higher nature to become your purpose and your meaning in life? And so I think that's what people mean when they say find your why, because it's like a, it's like a compass. It's a direction. It's a purpose. For living your life, the first thing you mentioned were your daughters. Well, that's a beautiful why, because if you keep something like your children in the forefront front of your mind, that influences the types of decisions you make. If if you think about service as a why, you know, I'm here for other people. I do things to serve other people. Well, that's going to change the decisions you make on a day-to-day basis. If faith and belief in a higher power is part of your why, then that's certainly going to influence the daily decisions you make. So, oh, yeah. uh, to me, that's what that means. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, you're and and those blessings and and that gravitate to to that to that why. So, whatever your alignment is, your your, your choices, your behavior, your your patterns, they start to make that shift. My why my why had shifted early on to you know success, cars, uh, the money, the ego, um, you know the the just that lifestyle and although i still love my family and everything my wife shifted to this that was a whole different set of consequences that came from focusing on that so how long you said you started partying at uh, around the age of 23 yeah you got sober june 10th uh 2010 january 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 1st yeah so how many years were you partying uh off and on you know you um when i first got into the brokerage world um age 23 there were there were some some situations um went through a divorce you know because i got so cocky and arrogant um and then i got married to my kid's mom who's just a beautiful human being and and uh, that was let's see i was 27 she was 19 so i'd cleaned up my life at that point and then, That's cutting uh, a little close, huh? Huh? 27 to 19? <laughs> yeah. You're cutting a yeah. little closer. <laughs> so my daughter, she's, she's, her husband's eight years older, and she's like, Dad, you can't say anything. 
It's different. <laughs> but so you stopped drinking. How did you stop drinking? Did you just go cold turkey? Did On you the January first date? Yeah. How old yeah, were just, you? Just twenty ten. So how old were you then? Twenty ten. I was. Um, let's see. I'm fifty nine now. So. Guys are putting me on the spot doing the math. Forty-seven. Um, Forty-seven. And you just quit cold turkey. Yeah, I just I, I woke up and I just thought um, I'm I'm absolutely going nowhere. I mean, I've lost everything. Two thousand eight, literally. Um, how am I going to re- recoup? And and what do I need to do? So you know, I, I looked at that word chaos and I said, okay, got to start making some different choices. And it's just one choice after another, just little teeny choices, not to be perfect, but progress. progress how, how old were you progress. when you got the nickname Chaos? Give me, I, I know I'm given number grief right now, but I'm curious, how long were you living as the persona of Chaos? Uh, that was probably 2000. So you spent a decade as as your 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 moniker your, yeah. you you were you were chaos that was an identity yeah. that was building during that decade I, ha- I had it on everything license plates this ring my daughter's made for me has chaos over here and then my first motorcycle and um yeah i started to i started to want to be i'm thinking i've already screwed up so Embrace why not it. just really create some chaos just so it became those of us who are comic book nerds, this became your alter ego. Yeah, yeah, it, it really was to the point that even your daughter, people knew that was that was your that was your alter ego. Yeah, interesting. I'm, it, not, what, I'm that guy that didn't have the inner peace that would be sitting out on the porch crying, or in his hotel room going, you know, everybody thinks I'm a rock star. They nicknamed me um, the Wall Street trading Harley riding rock and roll cowboy. Well, you're and, hanging out with Vince Neil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> D. Snyder. D. Fog uh, hat. Yeah. yeah, come on. We, we, you know, Has of- that changed? Like, do you, Back in those days, did you think... So I, today it seems like there's this theme of like the self or the ego, like who we are. A lot of that has to do with how reflective we are in ourselves. And one thing that's an interesting exercise for a person to do is spend, spend a week... Uh, making notes about the things you say to yourself, like yeah. how do you talk to yourself, oh, yeah. including how do you refer to yourself. So in those days, do you think in your own mind you referred to yourself as that that nickname, uh, Chaos? Yeah. And and has that changed? Do you still refer to yourself in your mind that way? I, I, I don't. Um, you don't ask yourself what would Chaos do? Whatever Chaos wants. That's yeah. <laughs> Back in the day, no. Now, now it's now it's. I've, I've got to rise above that chaos, you know, because yeah. chaos still comes into my life, whether it's just because of an, an event that happens in my life, and I decide how long it stays. And, and it sounds like you've had a big identity shift. I guess that's my point: is you embraced that as an alter ego. Yeah, I did to the point that it was on license plates and Everything. whatever, and uh, and and that became part of your identity. And and we we all act according to how we think about ourselves like that our identity you know our identity determines in many situations our behavior but and so you, i'm curious it sounds like you had a shift to where i, I don't want to i don't want that to be my identity anymore yeah it started to just feel uncomfortable you know and it was when i did the book and then the tedx talk rise above the chaos um that just felt so much better you but know? you used chaos again to straighten your life around um Turn your life around, should I say? Uh, you, you you turned it into an acronym. Tell me about that. Yeah. So chaos. I start. I started kind of studying the name, and 
in, in do you know what chaos means in Native American and Japanese nope. cultures? I don't. From chaos comes new beginnings and brilliant new dreams. One must experience chaos to give birth to dancing new stars. And that I started to take on. I thought, I've created a lot of chaos. I've got it in my life now. I've got a great great foundation of a ton of chaos that I can create some new beginnings with. You, you, you had in your experience. Yeah. Chaos created a new beginning for you. And so I, I shifted to that, and I've got, I've got that on my walls in my office in my home. You know, the chaos symbol. I got the chaos symbol tattooed just above this left ankle to remind me I've risen above that. But you've repurposed that now. Right. Yeah, you've redefined what that means. That's, and, be, that's beautiful. Yeah, and I've used that. So I've used that definition. And, and how I rose above, and this is kind of what I want to focus on because my story is my story, and it's a collection of experiences. Um. But people always say, well, how do you get out of it? You know, how do, how, you, you said that many times. How am I going to get out of this mess? I'm sure. Yeah. You know, and so I took the acronym CHAOS and, and C stands for choices. And you have to say to yourself, look, I've made a lot of choices and I don't label them good or bad or ugly. They were choices. And if I choose to label them bad choices, guess what? They're going to be bad choices and I'll beat myself up over it because now I've got a ton of bad choices. They're just choices. Okay, so I have to shift those choices. I have to shift my response and my choices. Okay, so that's the C in order to change. That's how I remember it. The H is higher power. And for me, I, I, I don't know how anybody, well, I don't know how anybody can't, can, can beat addiction without some type of higher power. For me, it's God and, and, and Jesus Christ. It can be whatever your higher power is. Okay, the A stands for accountability. I like it. You got to start taking accountability for who you are, the choices that you're making, and why you're here. Because blame, shame, and entitlement, nothing grows in that space. Accountability, personal responsibility, and ownership is where you see it all happen. That's where the real rock show happens. Okay, and so A is that, O is open. You've got to be open and vulnerable. You've got to be open to change and vulnerability. Um, it's hard for me to tell this story, but every time I do, it reminds me that I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to that spot. And then the S, and this sounds so weak, coming from a guy who was known as the hardy riding wall street trading rock and roll cowboy i've seen you do videos with uh, billy blank <laughs> yeah that's me surrender the s stands for surrender you have to surrender to everything that you have created you you created this mess now surrender and let let go let god for me so surrender is huge I love that acronym. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's the way I remember it. There's some it. hard stuff in there, too. Like, I'm thinking about, you know, a guy who felt like he had the world uh, by the horns, we'll say, uh, being open and surrendering. Those are tough. Those are tough things. I mean, I hope the listeners are pausing to think about, like, 
how open am I? Like, because we want to control <laughs> what happens to us in life, and we yeah. want to control what people know about us. Yeah, life. Exactly. You know I mean? yeah. that's Everything. the big one. Is like because we all mess up everybody on a daily process, but but we don't let everybody know about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of times we hide those. We're like, oh man, no. Well, I think yeah. one area where you've surrendered is your mugshot. Yeah, you know, uh, so many people, myself included, would probably feel humiliated and embarrassed to have that mugshot out there but i'm getting put on my debit card i know you told me that i think that's <laughs> that's awesome. amazing yeah. <laughs> uh that, that that you've you you know you've you've surrendered to the fact that yeah that happened that's me yeah and it sounds like you're redefining and repurposing of the word chaos is uh, man that's a lot of work but it's beautiful thanks and and full surrender is hard but it's the greatest the greatest blessings will come from from that so how does that turn into a book? Um, I was asked to uh, do a book. Uh, that was about four years ago, and then the TEDx talk three years ago. And is um, he our first TED talk guest? I yeah, think I think so. We've is. had a few other people write books, but we've never had anybody. TEDx. It's do called the Rise TEDx. Above the Chaos, and I'm not plugging it, but it was. Oh, uh, people should I've, watch it. I fought it like crazy. I'm like, I don't want to go do this. You know, I, I didn't feel, although I spoke for a living, uh, you know, doing my, my occupation and working with financial advisors and, and clients, but um, I did it. And the first, you know, your your letter from your from your daughter mm-hmm. that she wrote, um, here's why it touched me so much. My oldest daughter. Cheyenne was the first person that I practiced my TEDx talk on. I sat her down in my office and I said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this. I can only speak for 18 minutes. Will you listen? Now, my daughter didn't know. And I, I, I ran the risk of losing her. But I surrendered to that point and I was going to be vulnerable. Because what she heard in that 18 minutes, as soon as I got done, I said, Cheyenne, did you know those things about me? And she said, some of them, Dad. And she stood up and she came over and she gave me the warmest embrace that I've ever felt. And that's that full surrender. When you surrender and be vulnerable, love flows into your life. Truth flows into your life. Good things flow into your life. Um, so that's how that came about. And now I love speaking to the youth. Um, you know, speak out at the prison. Um, you know, that's that's coming. That hasn't happened yet. But um so any opportunity I have to tell my story and, and pay forward is – and so th- thanks so much for having me on. You guys are awesome. I'm just sitting here still feeling the goosebumps picture in that moment. <laughs> with your daughter. With your daughter. I mean, I mean what – you couldn't have said it any better how love flows into your life when we're open and we surrender and we're, we're authentic with people because prior to that moment, uh, she knew some things about you, but there was a barrier – between you guys and you broke that barrier down by taking the chance that she would reject you if she knew the whole story and and the yeah. opposite happened that's i i'm blown away that's she didn't awesome. speak to me for six years prior to that wow and wow. I, I stuck with it and just do the keep doing the next right thing and then I, I i ran that risk it was huge i'm going should i not say everything or should i sugarcoat it and Again, then I'd have to be living with that lie and probably start drinking again to cover up that, you know? So the thing that I'm thinking about, and I'm listening to your story, Curtis, and thank you so much for stopping by and sharing it with us, is that, you know, even on this podcast, sometimes we get 
too into the salaciousness of somebody's disease and to their addiction. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Well, we've had some big stories. You, you know, but here's a guy who's done a lot, partied with a lot, and, and been around the world. And although we don't know all the details of your story, I can feel the pain. I know what you had. I can see what you lost, and I saw what it did to you. Thank you. You know what I mean? But more importantly, I see the man that's sitting in front of me, and I see, I'm going to say it, the inner peace. And what a blessing that is to have. You know, and, and I think that's absolutely amazing, man. And and you Thank have you. surrendered. You are open. You are vulnerable. And you're going to change the world. You're doing wonderful things. Thanks, bro. And I, 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 I hesitate, but I think the rock star lifestyle started in 2010 for you. It did. You know what I mean? And that's, yeah. this is the rock star you want to be, bud. Yeah. You know what I mean? Thank you. This is the one that's going to make a difference. This is the one that's going to get people talking. And this is the guy you want to be. Thank you so much. This is who you are, man. And I'm so glad to know you. So thank you for stopping by. Grateful to know you. You've been an inspiration, both of you. My, I think the best part of your story today is not hanging out with rock stars and all of those things. Those those stories might be interesting on a certain level. Yeah. But the best part of the story is getting the hug from your daughter. Oh yeah. That's the best part of the story right there. And I, I agree with Casey. That's I don't think anything could make a dad feel better than to have that resolution with a child that you almost lost in your life. Yeah. And I have two beautiful daughters. They both live within a mile of me, and we spend a lot of time together, and they are my why. Yeah, that's the meaning in life. There's your meaning right there. And and if people are listening and, and feel like you could uh, do some good coming and speaking to their group, how would they uh, arrange that? Uh, I'm working on a website right now, but um, just get all of me through through Facebook. I have a Rise Above the Chaos uh, Facebook page or my, my personal page. And we'll um, link to that through our stuff. Because um, I think somebody who can come in with your charisma, life experience, and perspective, uh, that's what kids, young adults, people who are in that process of defining their identity, that's what they need to hear. They, they need to hear that all, all that material stuff that, that uh, betrayed my true identity. Yes. It wasn't really yes. who I wanted to be. This is who I want to be. So I, you can, I, I appreciate people like you thank doing you. so much good in our community. Thank you. I appreciate it. You guys are great. And thanks, thanks for everybody stopping by and listening to another episode of Project Recovery. In case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? You know, Casey, it's a KSL podcast. Hello, Salt Lake City. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.